Why don't I pray just before we uh, come back to that reading we heard. Father God, we thank you for the hope that we have this morning, for those of us placing our faith and our trust in you this morning, that we are in Christ. And by being in Christ, we find life, we find forgiveness, we find resurrection within our lives. Well, we thank you that whilst on the one hand the message of the gospel is quite challenging to me in, in presenting just the extent of my brokenness and my need, that the good news is better than I could have possibly imagined. That you've covered every sin, every need, every brokenness that I have within me. And all my sin and shame can be lifted from me, can be put to death that I can find new life in you. Lord, we thank you for the wondrous hope of the gospel. And so, Lord, this morning as we come to your word and we um, want to hear from you and to be taught and to be shaped and to be molded into your children, into your people, molded into your image, we pray that you might speak to us. The Holy Spirit, you might speak through these words. They may have life and a power to them within us. Spirit, pray that you might speak through me now and that you might minister in our hearts, in those innermost places that are so desperately needing your grace. We pray that you'd continue to be with us now as we worship you by listening to your voice through your word. Amen. If you keep that passage there open before you, you'll find that helpful to follow that along. This will be our, our last week in Romans now for a little while. Over the summer, we'll, uh, we'll sort of hit pause and, and look through Proverbs a little bit for a change of pace and a, and a change of theme. But I thought we couldn't sort of end on, on Romans chapter 7 before we did stop. I thought it would be right to, to get to see at least something from, from Romans chapter 8 here. And uh, I was saying to you last week that the two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8, need to be read together to be read properly. And one way I tried to, this week to understand what is going on here, um, when I was at college, uh, I managed to get to go on a placement uh, out to America for a few uh, weeks. That was my first time on a, on a plane, and it was all on a very sort of tight budget, and I didn't really know anything sort of better about sort of arranging flights and how you even sort of uh, do all of that. Uh, so I had to fly from London City Airport across to Amsterdam and then over to Seattle because that was the cheapest way to do it. Uh, it was also the longest way to do it. It meant I had a very long layover over in Amsterdam. I became very, very familiar with the terminal there. Uh, what I realized as well is if you have an overnight layover, you can't sleep because you can't trust that your bags aren't going to go sort of wandering. Uh, so I spent the whole evening just walking lap after lap of the airport terminal thinking, ah, this is why it was a lot, lot cheaper. But you know, what, was, what was I really uh, to know about that? But so I, I must have not slept really in about sort of 36 hours or so by the time I sort of actually got over and sort of put my feet on, on land over there. I was grumpy. I was a bit grouchy. It was a bit of a grim reality really to long haul travel that I was uh, getting a harsh introduction to. And yet... If I'd not gone through that whole sort of journey and that process, 
I might not have so great, greatly appreciated finally seeing uh, the view, the amazing vista of Mount Rainier at my destination. This is Mount Rainier in Washington State. It's the second highest mountain in the world, if you count just from sea level up. Uh, it's absolutely huge. It's beautiful. And actually, you see it everywhere where you are in and around Seattle and the Tacoma region. It just dominates over the landscape. Wherever you are, you see it. And it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's really beautiful. And the view felt all the more stunning, all the sweeter for the long road to get there. And I think you'll only really appreciate the towering beauty of the assurance on offer here in chapter 8 if you have first wallowed through the mire of chapter 7, because the chapters work together. See, the best art is not monochrome. It doesn't play one note. In order to reach the soaring peaks, you have to explore the dizzying lows. There's light and shade, whisper and storm, minor to a major lift. We live in an age that wants constant thrill, constant entertainment, constant positivity. But where what we really need is the range of human emotions as scripture reveals them. We've journeyed at some points through passages of scripture that have felt very low. But you'll not appreciate the heights if you don't journey through that. And so that's what we see here. Paul has considered the struggle of the Christian's battle against sin in chapter 7, that to be in a fight is to be in the fight. But now in chapter 8, Paul considers the amazing work of the Spirit within us. And we start to see the work of transformation that goes on inside of us. And we see an assurance. With this big de declaration here in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul is marking a significant transition in his thought and in his argument. In chapter 7, he's looked at the weakness of the law in relation to the work of sin. We find that the law can't change us. It seems to, if anything, just stoke up more rebellion within us. And all it can really do is sort of threaten a judgment that ultimately is not enough to stop us. But in chapter 8, we see him looking at the weakness of the law in relation to the work of the Spirit. We find that the Spirit can change what the law could not change within us. It gives us assurance that though we may not be perfect yet, we'll be renewed into the image of Christ. John Stott summarizes it like this. If in Romans 7, Paul has been preoccupied with the place of the law, in Romans 8, his preoccupation is with the work of the Spirit. In chapter 7, the law and its synonyms were mentioned some 31 times, but the Holy Spirit only once. Whereas in the first 27 verses of chapter 8, he is referred to 19 times by name. If the worry from chapter 7 was that your struggle might reveal you're not really saved after all, chapter 8 is all about reassuring a believer with the assurance of our relation to Christ. And so assurance is our theme here. One last quote just to preview. It's not just me thinking this. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes of this. You can be a Christian without assurance. But as a Christian, you should have assurance and enjoy it. The apostle shows us here how to have and to enjoy this blessed assurance. We should all be enjoying it. And the way to obtain it is to see that if we are justified then our final position must be secure. Your final position can be secure without you knowing it. 
There are many who go to their graves without enjoying assurance. But whether they enjoy it or not, they are safe and the end is certain. If you are in Christ, it must be so. But the fact that it is so does not mean of necessity that you know it and that you are enjoying it. You may be robbing yourself of your joy and happiness by your ignorance. And these epistles have been written in order to enlighten us and to give us the full joy of salvation. As the apostle has already said in verse 2 of chapter 5, we should be rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. We come to that position by realizing that we have been delivered from the law and are now living this new life, which is to be found in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. That is Paul's theme here that we'll explore this morning. So I want to show you four movements within these first 11 verses. Firstly, there's a declaration. There's a declaration that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Secondly, there's a transfer that we move from death to life through the Spirit as believers. Thirdly, he outlines the problem for us, that the flesh is opposed to God. And then fourthly, there's that guarantee that the Spirit's work in you now guarantees a resurrection then. Firstly, let's look at that first verse there and that declaration. He tells us here, there is therefore... And what does Paul mean when he says this? What, what is he writing therefore in light of here? Because of what? What is it that Paul is moving from here? Well, I don't think Paul is actually moving from verse 25 of chapter 7 where he left off. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I don't think he's actually picking up from that point, And most commentators agree with that. But that instead he is resuming a theme that he's mentioned in chapter 5. He's talked about that dynamic and that relationship that all people are by nature attached to a representative in Adam. And that all people who remain attached to their representative Adam who failed on their behalf and introduced sin to humanity and by which we've also joined and in some senses participated in that we're descended from him but also participated in that we're much like him we find nothing but death and yet we can have hope Paul says because just as we're found guilty because of the work of one representative who failed on our behalf we can be justified by the work of one good representative who has done righteously on our behalf. We can only, in fact, actually truly believe that we might be saved through faith, through the work of Jesus attributed to us, if we also accept that we were once guilty by the work of another as well as our own. And so Paul picks up that thought here, that thought of being in Christ. There is Therefore, now no condemnation. He's picking up that theme from chapter 5 and concluding everything really that has come since chapter 3, verse 21. That spoke of how the law is to keep all humanity silent because we can't answer back. Because we have no possible way of justifying ourselves before him. There's no argument we can bring before him that will let us off. There is therefore no condemnation. 
There is now no sentence handed down after judgment. And it is a legal word that Paul is using. Again, he has been again and again using the courtroom language and drama here before us. There is now no condemnation, no sentence being handed down. In fact, the way the word from the Greek to the English could, could even be translated as you're no longer sent down because it speaks of a sentence being handed down and we speak of people being sent down, don't we, for their crimes. And so what Paul has in his mind here, in using that specific word about condemnation, is, in the words of the classic song, more than a feeling. This is not about the feeling of condemnation. Many of you might spend much of your life feeling condemned. That is a reality too. But that is not what Paul is thinking about here. He is thinking about something actually objective. He is thinking about the actual sentence that you were once under, but are no longer under. This is about the actual material judgment of God that you do face, not just the feeling of shame that you might feel. See, the gospel will do amazing things to rid you of the negative power of shame in your life. It will do that. However, the gospel is not primarily interested with your felt sense of shame. What do I mean by that? Well, put it like this. That feeling of, I feel bad because I realize I have not met an expectation that I or somebody else has had for me. That feeling that I feel bad because I have not fulfilled my own desire to feel pride for having met that standard. The sort of shame which the world is full of is really pride dressing up as humility. If the feeling of shame comes from the sense of I've not been able to fulfill the sense of pride that I would have had if I could have met that expectation, that is not humility, but hurt and unfulfilled pride. There is a world of difference between feeling bad because you feel that you look bad or you feel bad in yourself and feeling bad because you know that what you did was bad. Those are two very different things. To know that the thing that you did was wrong, as opposed to the feeling bad because of it. One is a worldly grief, and one is a good grief. Here, Paul is talking about a a material sentence, and that that is no longer over us. It's not talking so much about that feeling of shame that we often feel. But he's saying something deeper here. You are legally declared innocent. Why would that be important for him to say? Because you will often still feel shame. You will often still feel condemnation. Part of that is because there is an adversary who is the accuser and who will pop up at opportune moments to remind you of failings. To perhaps even turn things that aren't so much failings into failings in your mind. There is one who will stoke up feelings of condemnation and shame and despair. But here the point is, no matter what you feel, you are no longer condemned. You are no longer under sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And again, he's picking up this idea from chapter 5 that those judged in light of the work of Christ on our behalf instead are set free. It's why it's right not to include what you may have as a footnote in your scripture there. You might have a footnote at uh, verse 1 telling you that it may also add for those who walk not according to the flesh. That's why that should remain in the footnote and not in the text because it actually goes against the whole point that Paul is trying to make. The whole point that Paul is trying to make here in this one verse is regardless of what you feel, if you are in Christ, you are not condemned The footnote is confusing because what it does is it seems to add a condition on the end of it, doesn't it? And interesting, actually, the footnote was not always there. In the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts, that footnote is not included. In fact, it's actually the the King James Version that introduced this additional footnote. It was a document that was produced by Catholics. There is very much an agenda as to why you might want to include that footnote because what it does is is it takes the tone and the feel away from an argument which is very much and very clearly telling you you are saved regardless of what you do to saying, well, you know, you're saved, yes, but so long as you keep it up. No. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's a really really important declaration for you to hear there's that declaration there's no condemnation for those in christ but secondly there's a transfer that we see here isn't there there's a transfer from death to life through the spirit for the believer december 2015 after the signing of the paris uh, climate agreement uh, leonardo dicaprio gave a speech at the united nations and he closed that speech by saying this is the body that can do what is needed. All of you sitting in this very hall, the world is now watching. You will either be lauded by future generations or vilified by them. Lincoln's words still resonate to all of us here today. You will be remembered in spite of ourselves, of fiery trials through which we pass will light us down in honour or dishonour to the last generation. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the the last best hope of earth. That is our charge now. He ended with these words, you are the last best hope of earth. We ask you to protect it, or we and all living things we cherish are history. Thank you very much. He was addressing what's been dubbed as the climate crisis. The damage already caused by rising temperatures and potential damage thereof is alarming, isn't it? And yet, I think it pales into comparison with the morality crisis which produces far less anxiety, tears or virtue signalling throughout our culture. Because the morality crisis is such that even if we were to buy a few more years for our through climate policy, and don't mishear me, that might be a very good thing to do, the earth will still tear apart at the seams in another way and on another axis. Friends, the last, the best hope of earth is not the United Nations. Thank God. You may have watched this week, as I did, a BBC documentary highlighting the depravity and wickedness within the United Nations. Here's one stat for you from that documentary, that one-third of United Nations staff report being the victim of sexual assault. That's of those reported. Story after story was given of financial corruption through climate change committees and steering groups. And Leonardo DiCaprio himself, the climate prophet, uses private planes to fly to 
parties in Monaco himself. Are these really the people that we trust to deliver the earth? God help us if it is. Seriously, God help us. If that's who we think will save the earth, the last best hope of the earth, what a delusion. To think we would be the answer to the problem we've created. The last best hope of the earth is Christ Jesus. That Jesus dies to release us from bondage to sin and the condemnation of judgment. Jesus is always the last, the best, the only hope of the earth and all upon it. The end of the earth will not be through climate change and the end of the earth will not be its destruction. The word of God tells us this. The end of the earth will be the full-scale redemption, renewal and recreation of the earth at Jesus' return. And it's important that we do actually fight for that narrative to be told and that hope to be held. Are you saying climate change isn't happening? No. Are you saying we shouldn't care for the earth then? No. What are you saying then? I have zero hope that the United Nations will save the earth and I'm determined not to allow you in any way to see them as some sort of functional saviour like some elements of the intelligentsia would want you to believe. The last best hope of the earth is Christ. That's what we see here in these few verses. Four, now we get the reason that there is no condemnation, that we don't face that, that there's ground for assurance here, that we're transferred from death to life. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's not only about exoneration from condemnation, it is, that we're freed from condemnation, but I hope you also see that there's a second part to it, a positive aspect, if you like, that on the one hand there's the freedom from the sentence that we were facing, but on the positive there's here a liberation from the law of sin and death. The same law that we've sinned at work from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 21. Two things here are connected. Because we have been liberated from the oppressive reign of sin, I face no condemnation. So there are two laws contrasted. The law of the spirit of life, the law of the sin and death. And we've seen them at work in Romans up to now. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And I hope you see that contrast there in that sentence between God And law, God has done what the law could not do. Our freedom and liberation comes from God's work on our behalf. We're unable to save ourselves. Why, we're told here, verse 3, was it's weakened by the flesh. The problem isn't the law itself. It's not as if God got that wrong. Whoops, it turns out I hadn't thought everything through. No, the problem isn't the law. The problem is our inability to keep it and the corrupting power of sin that drives that. The law weakened by the flesh. So how has he saved us? Well, verse 3 continues, that by sending his own son. 
God's solution to humanity's rebellion against him is deeply personal to send his son by sending his own son we're told in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin comes in the same skin as you and me to give his body up as a sacrifice for sin and Paul is very uh, technically precise in the language here he tells us that he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh Paul is playing a very delicate balancing act here in the way he's wording this. He's very precise. It doesn't come across nearly at all in the English compared to the Greek. But he's trying to balance attention here. Because he wants to say that God in Christ takes on human flesh. He identifies with all of the limitations of the flesh. But he also, I think, is not wanting to give the suggestion in any way that in so doing, Christ had partnered in sin. Therefore, he's really precise in his language here, and the precision is seen in a contrast. He tells us here that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, where there is homoimia, in the form of. And he does something very similar in Philippians chapter 2. He says that Jesus was being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It's the same word he uses there. And now we see the precision of what Paul is doing by looking at a further contrast. The contrast is with how Paul characterizes Jesus as having been God. This is language about Jesus being human in nature. But now listen to the way that he puts it when he talks about Jesus as being like God. Because he uses a different word to describe it. Colossians 1 verse 15 19 and in two uh, chapter 2 verse 9 he talks about he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily the word that the early church sort of fathers had for this was homoousios the first word was homoomia. The best way of describing it is being like in the form of, being like. Homoousios is very specific. It's a word that's used to describe the Trinity. It's used to describe this very idea that Jesus is the exact image of the Father. He is homoousios, the same substance. Before the other word is about in the form of, kind of like here is very specific. He's kind of like humanity. There's one or two differences. He's not affected by sin in the way that we are. He's not corrupted by that. He is exactly like his father. The exact representation of the father's being. We could say he's equal in his godness. He's made of the exact same stuff. Jesus here is in the form of flesh. But not so much that he had made uh, that he himself had sin within him. But Jesus is in the exact same substance as the Father, so that he shares in all the same glory. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemns sin in the flesh, we're told. The the previous point is now so important, because it means that Jesus can actually come and carry our sin and can set us free. He can because only a man can really die for humanity's sins. And yet, it could only really be God who could live a perfect life. We know that from experience all too well. What is his answer 
to the problem of our rebellion against him was to send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh the sentence has been lifted and paul tells us he does this so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us the law is fulfilled in us on our behalf by jesus in our place and yet and now this is the right place to put that footnote from verse one because this really is one connected thought that paul has made but it fits better at the end so that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit because the transfer should result in a transformation of our behavior we'll sing in a, uh, a little later on and can it be no condemnation now i dread jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine bold i approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through christ my own we are made alive in christ and yet it has an effect doesn't it we transfer from death to life we walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit and now paul stops to address a problem here and the problem is that the flesh is opposed to god Paul turns to look back now to our former state and to look out, I suppose, to the state of the world in which we live. He says, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's that contrast, isn't there? Two different people, two different ways to live. Those living according to the flesh those living according to the spirit those living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh those who live by the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit what you set your mind on determines whether you're living in life or in death in the spirit or in the flesh in fact actually uh, the king james version the way it translates setting your mind on is much better i think it talks of savoring because it's about more than intellect it's about what you love what is attractive and appealing to you it's not it's, it's not just a sort of disconnected brain process that's n- not related to your emotions and to your heart too it's about what you love what you fear losing what you hope to find and to gain it's about your affections as much as it is what you think so it leaves us to ask doesn't it what have we set our minds upon what occupies my time my emotions what do i fear most what do i love most what most motivates me to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace there's two different groups of people there isn't there those who live according to the flesh those who live according to the spirit two different focuses those who set their minds on the things of the flesh those who set their minds on the things of the spirit and then there's two outcomes death and life and peace We've seen the results of that in the letter so far, from 118 to 321. That life in the flesh opposed to the spirit is death. What we've seen in the chapter just before is not that. 
What we've seen in chapter 7 is something different because there's a struggle. There's a struggle. In chapter 7, the mind isn't set on the flesh. That's why it's describing our current experience at times. Because in chapter 7, the mind is not set on the flesh. In fact, Paul will say, wretched man that I am, I, I do the things that I don't want to do. The good that I want to do, I don't find myself always doing. That's someone who is not set on the things of the flesh, but is set on the things of the spirit, but finds themselves not always able to live out what they would want to in their heart. This is different. Chapter 7, the mind isn't set on the flesh, but the mind sometimes is drifting into it. And so sometimes we have to fight it. And so Paul now highlights two problems for those in the flesh in these next couple of verses, 7 to 8. That the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. And that secondly, you cannot please God apart from Jesus, of course. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There's three significant points in that sentence. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. The word there is a word for enemies. It's a word that Paul had used in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, to speak of what we are like before Christ having saved us, that we are enemies. While we were enemies, he has given up his son for us. Anything other than obedience to God is a rejection of God, no matter how politely or pleasantly done. The natural mind is hostile to God. Secondly, the natural mind doesn't submit. The word there is about, it's like a sort of uh, a military sort of a term. It's, it's like about ranking. It's not willing to rank under. Or another way it can be used is to talk about becoming subject to The natural mind does not want to rank under God, does not want to become subject to God. We instead arrogantly want to take autonomy for ourselves. Culture loves this idea. It's partly why the poem Invictus has become popular again, used in adverts and other places too. William Ernest Henley writes this, he says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And then the famous verse, It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The natural mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God. And indeed, and here's the real rub of it, indeed, it cannot. Without the regenerating work of the Spirit, without the Spirit opening our eyes, opening our ears, softening our hearts, we can't come to him. Jesus himself teaches that. Before you wonder whether maybe what Paul says is not quite in line with Jesus, this is nothing other than what Jesus himself taught. John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him, or who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
In fact, another place, when asked why he speaks in parables to the crowd, which he only actually explains to his disciples, most of them left in confusion at the end of it, Matthew chapter 13, he says he's doing that to fulfill the word of God given to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What's he saying? He's saying that I do that so that they will hear but not understand, because they can't. The only way that they can understand is if, like the disciples, God had been pleased to work within us, opening our ears, opening our eyes, softening our hearts. Until that work goes on within us, we'll hear, but we'll not understand. We'll hear, but we'll not perceive. The natural mind, apart from the gracious, regenerating work of God himself on our behalf within us, cannot submit to him. It will not. It does not. And then he summarizes it here. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's the natural result of verse 7's characterization that all humanity needs saving. And yet we don't end on this problem here. We end on the guarantee that the Spirit's work in you now guarantees a resurrection then. You, however, Paul has looked at the problem that faces us in pre-Christian life as a non-Christian. Now he looks post-conversion. What of those who are trying to follow Christ? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. There's two synonyms there, two words, phrases meaning the same thing. To be in the Spirit is to have the Holy Spirit dwell within you. There are two ways to say you are a believer. See, the Spirit working within us is a prerequisite. It needs to happen before we can ever actually turn to Christ for ourselves. You can't become a Christian until this happens within you. But it's also universal. It's true of every believer. There's not just a certain tier of believers who have the Spirit working within them and then a lower class who do not. No, every believer has the Spirit within them because there's no way that you could see Christ for who he is without the Spirit having worked within you. For each of us, we experience by the work of the Spirit within us, what happens for Paul is his eyes are blinded and scales have to be lifted from his eyes to see Christ. As Jesus heals the man born blind, and at first he sees some shadows. He can see some figures. He can begin to see some forms. But it's blurry, it's fuzzy, it's not clear. For many of us, we know that process, that there's a process of coming towards faith where we, we're starting to see some things. But it doesn't all make sense. We can't get our head around all of it. But there's some bits that are coming to life within us. As he continues to touch his eyes, then full sight is given. And what was forms and 
shadows and blurs comes to life. Now he follows it up, verse 9 here. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. Having the Spirit working within us is the family trait, if you like. We sort of know this in life around us. The Holy Spirit is the marker of the children of God. It's the family trait. It shows whether you're in the family. It's not possible to have the Spirit if you're not in the family. We see this around us in the natural world, don't we? That children carry family traits. Uh, Here is Prince William, uh, his dad, Prince Charles. Uh, Worryingly for William, it's very easy to see whose son he is. Uh, He looks a lot like his father. And then on the other hand, you have Prince Harry and Prince Charles, and he doesn't look quite so much like him. He doesn't seem to have so many of the familiar family traits. Uh, On the other hand, put him next to James Hewitt, and you can find potentially uh, a few fairly obvious family traits, uh, perhaps some of the suggestion over the years about his lineage, isn't it? The Spirit is the mark of the children of God. If you have the Spirit, you're a child of God, and if you're a child of God, you'll have the Spirit within you. It is the family trait. The answer to the corrupting power of indwelling sin is the purifying work of the indwelling Spirit within us. But if Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body is dead. Materially, bodies are dying at different speeds. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher, commentator, but also previously a doctor, physician to the queen. The moment we enter this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you'll ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. Sin leads to death in our spirits and in our behavior. But the Spirit brings us life. In the midst of the Christian struggle with righteousness and away from sin that we heard in chapter 7, the Spirit brings life in the inner being. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. There is a hope of resurrection for us. Our confidence then in the reality of resurrection comes from the presence of God's spirit working within us now, given as a guarantee to reassure us so that our hope for growth now comes from our confidence in Christ's resurrection then to, uh, in, in the past as he's risen Jesus from the grave and the one that is to come in which we will share in the future. Apart from Christ, we are dead. We cannot please God. We would not choose him. We have no hope. You don't need life hacks. You don't need sweat and toil. You don't need a set of spiritual steroids to boost your performance. You need the living God at work within you. The good news this morning is that what we need, God has supplied That God gives us the power of his spirit to renew us into his image. And that the evidence of the spirit's work within you is a guarantee of the resurrection he'll grant you at Christ's return. It is an assurance. Whether you feel that or not, whether you think your performance is particularly impressive or not, 
It's a declaration for you. Just as we end. What do I do if the Spirit doesn't feel close to me then? With all that being said, if the Spirit doesn't feel close to me, what do I do? If the Spirit's work within me is the sort of guarantee and the hope of assurance, what do I do if I don't really feel that in this moment? Let me just offer a few simple things. Feelings don't trump truth. Even if you do feel the Spirit is far off, that does not mean that your feelings align with reality. We live in a world that sadly says, increasingly, whatever you feel to be true is true. That is not true. It is deeply, deeply damaging. Let me give you just one argument to defend that. Psychiatry. The psychiatric profession is premised upon the idea, upon the truth, that many of the things that you and I feel very, very deeply, very, very sincerely, don't align with reality. Any of the negative ways we see ourselves are not true at all. Whether you feel it or not, Paul declares to you, you do have the Spirit if you're in Christ. Secondly, I'll ask you a question. What do I do if the Spirit doesn't feel close to me? I'd ask you this question. What do you mean when you say that? How would you define the feeling that the Spirit of the living God is close or is far away from you? I suspect underneath that feeling is a significant theological error that conflates the Spirit's existence, work, and presence with you having visible sensory experiences. But that is wrong. And it also rejects the idea that God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. You may not feel him close. You may be very sincerely misguided. He may be very much closer than you feel. Thirdly, what do I do if I don't feel the Spirit's close? Well, ask for more. It's really very simple and uncomplicated. Ask for more. Ask and you shall receive, Jesus says. Fourthly, how about this? And lastly, do you listen? When you say you don't feel the Spirit particularly close or powerful to you just now, what space do you give him in which to speak? What room have you made? What time have you given? We have this thing that does my head in uh, at home. Uh, we have times where four or five separate conversations are going on at the same time. Uh, and I don't know who I'm to give eye contact to and how I'm actually to make out any of the conversations out of any of them. To me, it's, it's just a mess of noise. Everybody's talking. Everyone's voice is being heard. But I don't take anything in. And though they've spoken, and I have heard, sort of, because it's a mess of noise, I can't take anything in. Are you trying to listen to the Spirit whilst doing four other things? Whilst having four other simultaneous conversations? Maybe the Spirit is talking to you. But maybe you need to turn down the volume on some of the other conversations and some of the other noise that can take over our lives. Believe it, whether you feel it or not, I hope that you would feel it, and I'll pray in a moment that you will feel it, but whether you feel it or not, the Spirit is at work within you, 
and the spirit being at work within you is assurance that you have moved from death to life and that you have a resurrection to come and that he will continue to be with you and hold you and walk alongside you and will not let you go. Whether you feel that particularly or not, it is a truth Paul declares for us. But why don't I pray? Because I'm going to pray that you will feel that too because it would be better for you to feel and experience that rather than be robbed of joy believing that your felt sense of him not being present is true when it's not father god we thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us on the one hand in this passage as so many times in romans we're really confronted with a difficult challenging sort of truth about just how far off we really are apart from you and so lord we're just so thankful for your gracious work that absolutely in spite and responding to that reality your love is seen in that people who don't deserve it and don't want you you have given yourself to you have worked within us so that our eyes would be open so that our hearts would be softened so that our ears would be open so that we could see you so that we could savor you so that we could experience and live and walk in your joy your peace your salvation We thank you that you've done that for us in spite of what we've done. That nothing we do can earn it, but also nothing we do can disqualify us from it if we're in you. And so, Lord, for many of us, in many different times and seasons in life, we don't always feel quite so aware of your Spirit's work within us. Lord, we thank you for the guarantee and the assurance that it is that you grant us your presence within us through your Spirit that you change us, you transform us one degree of glory to another. Rather much slower than we would hope, but nonetheless you do. Lord, I thank you for the truth it is this morning that if we are placing our trust and faith and confidence in you this morning, you are in us. You are with us, Spirit. But Lord, we also recognize the importance it is to feel that, to experience that, to walk in it to wake up each day into it with a strong and vibrant sense of your holy presence being with us and being for us and being alongside us. So, Spirit, I ask that you might now, for each of us, fill us anew and that, Lord, the thing that we know to be true as a concept, we might experience to be true in our daily living. Lord, we pray that you might fill us now, that we might be full of the assurance and confidence in the gospel and equipped and empowered to be able to bless and serve and minister to those you've placed us around. So, Holy Spirit, pray that you might do that deep work within each one of us. For our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. We're going to sing uh, a final song together, and can it be? And we'll remind ourselves of all those great truths we've seen in that passage.